Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is June the 21st, 2021. Good ideas are rather like London buses, to repeat an old joke. You wait, you wait, you wait. And then eventually they all come at the same time. You get more than one bus. Um, last month, or maybe a couple of months ago, um, we did a show with uh, two old friends um, of Keenan, uh, Kerry Arsenault and Bathsheba Demuth, um, both very distinguished writers and academics. They've opened something called the Environmental Storytelling Studio at Brown University, which offers writing courses for scholars and faculty and graduate students trying to teach um, academics in particular how to tell good stories, compelling stories, seductive, powerful stories about the environment. Both of, uh, both of these individuals have done it with their written work. Kerry Arsenault's Mill Town um, is a wonderful book about the environmental degradation uh, of deindustrializing America. And uh, Bathsheba Demuth's Floating Coast and Environmental History of the Bering Strait is a remarkably innovative uh, cross disciplinary history, um, archaeology, I guess, of, of the Bering Strait. So, as I said, good ideas come like London buses. You wait and you wait, and then they all come at the same time. Um, there's another book out about telling stories about the environment, this time by a professor of literature at Harvard University, Martin uh, Puchner. Uh, it's called Literature for a Changing Planet, and I'm thrilled that uh, Martin is joining us from Cambridge, Mass. Martin, um, how did you come up with this idea? Do you know uh, Kerry Arsenault and... Um, and, uh, and, and Bathsheba Demuth at, uh, at Brown, or, or, or is, are your ideas and their ideas entirely separate? Well, I, I didn't know them. I learned about them from your show, but I, I'm ashamed that I didn't know them because they're right next door and there's a lot of overlap. And I think it just shows that, you know, London buses come in hordes. And so we are thinking <laughs> about similar issues uh, at the same time. So thank you for introducing me to them. Well, thank you for coming on the show, and um, thank you for raising this all-important issue of telling stories about the environment. You're a professor of literature, Martin. What can a, a professor, a very distinguished one at a illustrious university like Harvard, what can you teach us both? Uh, well, Kerry Arsenault in particular is a writer. She's not an academic. Uh, but what do academics bring to the party here, particularly literature academics? Yeah. So one of the things that I feel like I am trying to bring is a is to bring a large corpus of texts, basically the canon of world literature. This is what I study. I study literature not in sort of these smaller, you know, 50 years, 100 years, English literature, French literature, American literature. I'm trying to take a big picture approach to literature, really thinking about literature in, in, in chunks of like a thousand years or even 4,000 years. And so I was, what I was trying to do in this book is think about the long history of storytelling in order to understand 
where these stories that we keep repeating, we keep retelling uh, uh, in various forms about what it means to be human, about the relationship to the environment, where they come from, and where we can look for alternative ways of thinking about our relationship to the environment. So this is one of the things I'm trying to bring to the table, that, that long history of literature that goes all the way back to the first great text of world literature, namely the Epic of Gilgamesh, which I think holds almost something like a key to where we, where we are today. Not just the Epic of Gilgamesh, the Hebrew Bible. I know you think that's also an important way of reminding ourselves of the importance of stories and the uh, Buddhist uh, sutra, the Diamond Sutra. What is it about, about storytelling, Martin, that defines us humans? Why do we like telling stories? What's seductive about it? I think it's, it's how we essentially make sense of the world. It's how we define our relationship to other humans and to the environment. It's how we try to answer basic questions such as, you know, why are we here? Where do we come from? What, what holds us together? And so I think in, a, in some sense, we are, I think of us as storytelling creatures. I think we, in a, some sense, can't help tell stories. And so the, the question for me, the follow-up question then is always, where do the stories we default to come from? And that's when I start digging in history. Yeah, there's the cliche, I don't know who said it, but there's only, what, eight or ten kinds of stories ultimately in all of world literature. I'm curious, though, Martin, and uh, implicit in your work and also in uh, Kerry Arsenault and uh, Bathsheba Demus' work is that we're not telling good stories about the environment. Because if we were, we wouldn't need books like yours and we wouldn't need institutes like the studio at Brown. What are we doing wrong? Why aren't we able to tell a story which to most of us seems self-evident and, and the story of the 21st century? Yeah, I, I think that's really well put. And so I think in part is we are really stuck on these older stories, like the stories of the flood that first shows up in the Epic of Gilgamesh, and then of course in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, and that we can see in all these you know, Hollywood disaster movies. So we, we are somehow stuck on one mode of storytelling, which is why I think once we pay attention to that, once we notice that, that's sort of the first step to then coming up with different kinds of stories. Now, you know, we, I just recently did a storytelling contest on the environment with a couple of colleagues here at Harvard for, for, for students. And it's very interesting. There's one, the person who won first prize was someone who wanted to, was a comic writer who, who tried to tell stories about the environment in a comic mode, not because it's a ha-ha topic, but because he felt like enough with these apocalyptic stories, we need to, to change, change up the way we, we tell stories, and especially when it comes to the environment. I wonder, though, when we talk about the environment, when we tell stories about the environment, we're not just talking about the environment, we're talking about us. The, probably the best story I've read recently, and I brought this up several times, I actually need to get him on the show, is Richard Powers' novel, Bewilderment, um, which is a, he's one of America's leading, if not leading novelist storytellers. But it's, I don't know if you've read it, Martin, but it's also a novel about knowledge, learning, childhood, generations. Can one write, it's a brilliant book, um, and a memorable book. I'm not altogether convinced by all of it, but he's certainly a masterful storyteller. 
my point here is, Martin, can we just tell stories about the environment or we do, do we need to just talk about the world, ourselves, society? I think absolutely, yes, you're so right. It's not just, oh, what's out there. It's about how have we influenced the environment? You know, this this is, the, you know, for example, resource extraction. That's clear since the epic of Gilgamesh. We have this 4,000 year long record that's called the canon of literature, world literature. That's also a record of how we have extracted resources, how we have uh, you know, uh, 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 treated the environment because of the kinds of lifestyle choices we have made. The Epic of Gilgamesh, I keep coming back to it, is basically a text about urbanization. That's when urban developments began. And so this is why I feel like it really holds the key to, to our world, where we, where we still extract resources in order to sustain a certain lifestyle. And we can't even imagine alternatives. So very much so. Uh, stories about the environments have to be stories about us humans and how we live and the kinds of choices we make. Martin, is there a break in modernity in terms of how we think about the environment, the kind of stories we tell? Earlier this week, I had an interesting show with a, an American historian, Mark Lee Gardner. He has a new book out. Um, the Earth is All That Lasts. It's a book about the indigenous peoples about, of, of North America, their genocide, their wars with the white people, with white colonialists, uh, white Europeans. And, and he suggests, and, and this has come up a number of different ways and times in the show recently, that the indigenous peoples of North America, for example, uh, Sioux Nation, they had a different conception of the environment. It wasn't autonomous. It wasn't separate. It wasn't a thing that you could extract something from. I think that's right. And there is recently much more emphasis on indigenous storytelling about the environment. I was just uh, last month, I was down in Florida in Tallahassee talk, talking about my book. And I uh, made contact with a wonderful star, uh, a scholar named Juan, Juan Carlos Galeano, who uh, came up with this book, Collecting ah. Folk Tales from the Amazon. And it's a really a wonderful collection. It's a couple of, it's about 10 years old. He's also since done a documentary film. And it, I think he's going for something similar from what you're describing, Andrew, namely, we need to not, in, especially in order to not keep telling the same stories, we need to look for different stories. And indigenous storytelling traditions are definitely one place that we haven't looked very much and that there, there's a lot to learn from there. Yeah, I take that point. And I, of course, I'm the one who brought it up. But on the other hand, one could say, if one was skeptical, that we can't return to being the indigenous peoples of North America. We've wrecked the environment, for better or worse, as a consequence of industrialization and modernity. So the idea of some sort of ideal Rousseauan return to innocence is 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 not really realistic or um, or convincing. It's always going to be a fake, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, I don't think that one should tell these stories or the lifestyle of the people who generated them should, you know, be a blueprint for the, for the future. I think it's more a question of expanding our intellectual horizons, trying to imagine different forms of living together. And of course, they have to be scalable. That's one problem with some, you know, it, uh, uh, 
indigenous lifestyles that aren't really scalable or viable for, you know, dense spaces and, and so on and so forth. But I think there is something to be learned from these kinds of stories about, you know, rewiring our imagination, essentially, and, and, and being able to move away from, as I said, some of these stories about civilization that that we keep retelling and that clearly are not a way forward either so uh, at the very least maybe some kind of mashup of you know of this kind of uh, of indigenous stories and uh, modernity stories that are somehow influencing each other uh, maybe that's one way of trying to look for open spaces and trying to imagine different things yeah, we had one guest, I think, who, who did that kind of mashup. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the work of a young journalist, very talented journalist, Debbie Lockwood. She basically traveled around the world um, listening to people's voices on climate change. And she has a book out, A Thousand and One Voices on Climate Change, Everyday Stories of Flood, Fire, Drought and Displacement from Around the World. She traveled around the world on a bicycle. It's, it's quite an achievement. I'm assuming that that's the kind of storytelling that you admire. I don't know if you're familiar with her work. I am. In fact, we did a event together when my book came out in the U.S. at the Boston Athenaeum. Now, I think I, I totally agree. And it's, you know, I one of the, again, when I look at literary history, one of the forms of storytelling I've become increasingly interested in are these story collections, sometimes from the Middle Ages, like Thousand and One Nights, and of course, even in the title, uh, Devi uh, used that. So yes, we are very much uh, simpatico there. How, how how critical do we need to be about stories, Martin? Um, you know, some stories are better than others. Uh, last week, I had a a writer, Bob Keith, on the show. He has a new book out, Climate Nomics: uh, Washington, Wall Street, and the Economic Battle to Save Our Planet. The story he tells, I'm not altogether convinced, is that the only way to save the planet is through capitalism. Now, there are many people who will strongly disagree. Tim Jackson, for example, who's been on the show. How, I mean, not all stories about the environment are equal. Some are better than others. Some are more compelling. Some perhaps are more honest than others. Is that fair? I, I agree. And this is why, you know, I've developed this quite critical take on the long history of storytelling that we are sort of looking back to on which we constantly draw. No, ab absolutely. It's because stories are so, storytelling is such a fundamental way, I think, in which we make sense of the world. It really matters what kind of stories we tell. And so this is why I think, you know, moving away from certain form of sin and punishment disaster uh, movie kind of storytelling, I think is really important because we, that, that we've tried that and it, and it's not worked. Yeah, but on the other hand, Martin, and we've had lots of those kind of conversations. I had Eugene Linden on the show recently, very distinguished American environmentalist. He has a new book out, Fire and Flood, A People's History of Climate Change from 1979 to the Present. I mean, he says, he argues, and he knows his stuff, that a path to a livable future is becoming narrower and narrower. So that's, that's a truthful story. We need to be honest about what's happening. If we dress it up in metaphor and narrative that may resonate but don't get to the core point isn't that dangerous too i i suppose it's true andrew though you know what worries me is that i mean so we have on the one hand climate science and climate science has become so good at predicting you know better better models of 
predicting the kinds of climate change that we'll be facing with you know, near certainty in 20, 30, 50, 100, 150 years. Um, what where the sort of disaster scenarios make me a little bit skeptical is that then we have people predicting the kind of social and civilizational changes that, that will go hand in hand with these scenarios. And they are much more speculative. They are, you know, they don't have the 99% or 98% certainty of climate models. There are huge assumptions about how societies adapt, uh, uh, how much stress they uh, uh, can, you know, stomach, uh, how, how they will change under these slow but mounting pressures. And so that's where I feel like the, the sudden disaster, the breakdown of civilization, these scenarios, I don't know whether I find them, you know, scientifically convincing and nor am I sure that they're actually doing the job of inducing people to change. They can lead to a kind of, well, if it's too late or if, you know, the end is nigh, then, then, then it's, then I don't have to do anything. We are screwed anyway. What about stories about simply loving nature? We've had again, many books, many brilliant environmental writers and storytellers write about forests, trees, nature. One person I had on the show recently, Don, John Reed, uh, wrote a book, Evergreen, Saving Big Forests to Save the Planet. Is there a role for poetry, essentially, or narrative poems, storytelling, which reflects our love of nature? Is there value there? Or are you a bit wary of that one that 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 kind of storytelling too you know i no i think there's definitely a, a role you know richard powers overstory is another example a wonderful novel about trees and how they communicate with each other um no i think that's important uh, to because i do think one role that literature especially fiction and poetry can play is you know it is to change our imagination and to change how we interact with other living organisms and so i think that's where i think you know uh, 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 f fiction and 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 poetry uh uh can can do a lot uh, i mean they th th that's the role they have always played in um in in expanding our imagination and changing it Martin, again, you don't need me to tell you this. You probably don't need me to tell you much, but you teach at Harvard. You're dealing with a lot of very anxious kids. We live in an age of deep anxiety for one reason or other, COVID, the environment, the economy, who knows what. Um, should we tell the story of the environment in terms of this anxiety? I had a very brilliant young English writer, Lucy Jones, on the, on the show uh, last year. She has an important book out, Losing Eden, uh, which again, again, the language, of course, is appropriate for you. Our fundamental need for the natural world and its ability to heal body and soul. Should we be linking everything together? Is everything indeed connected, especially when it comes to our age of anxiety? You know, I, my hunch is yes, on some level, especially since I think everything is connected to climate change. I mean, it touches every type of decision, me as a civilization. But aren't we, I'm sorry to jump in here, Martin, but isn't that the old sort of Marxist mistake of what well, everything's related to capitalism? And in the end, you become so sort of ideological that you lose much coherent 
Yeah. No, I hear that, Andrew. And, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that the environment, I mean, that would be the Marxist is, is the root of everything in the basis and everything else just follows from it or is, you know, the superstructure. I would never uh, uh, put that. And I think saying that uh, climate change and solutions to climate change touch on on basically everything we do is not the same as saying it explains everything or it's, you can reduce it to that. Um, and, you know, especially, so, you know, you mentioned the COVID and the, the mental stress. I mean, COVID is a result of the human changing of the environment because of domestication of animals, the destruction of habitats. Uh, that's how viruses jump from wild animals to to humans. So, you know, I think that um, I do think that what it means to say everything has to do with climate change is simply that you can't analyze you know, for example, COVID or the anxiety uh, uh, experienced by a younger generation that will deal with the consequences of what we have wrought much more than we do without also including reflections on the environment. That's how I would put it. Your book, Martin, is called Literature for a Changing Planet. It's not film, it's not multimedia, it's not the internet. We had Erin um, Brockovich on the show, um, She's the author of a book, Superman's Not Coming. But of course, most people will be familiar with Erin Brockovich from the 2000 movie uh, directed by Steven Soderbergh, um, in which she was portrayed by Julia Roberts. Again, I mean, you teach literature at Harvard, so I don't want to be too rude about literature, but most people don't read the Bible. Most people don't read the Buddhist Sutra. Most people watch movies. Most people go online. Are we barking up the wrong tree, Martin, with literature? Should it be <laughs> film for a changing planet or TikTok for a changing planet? No, I, I, I take that point, Andrew. And, you know, the reason why I called it literature is because basically I'm looking back at these 4,000 years in literature and trying to extract different stories that we should tell and that we shouldn't tell. But when it comes to now and in the future, I think the lessons we can apply from that exercise is you know apply very much to film, not just to written literature. I totally agree. Uh, it's become quite a niche uh, occupation, hasn't it? Uh, and so I think the larger storytelling lessons, for example, about comedy versus disaster and so on and so forth, they are certainly applicable to to film and and I know podcasts, even uh, video interviews. Even video interviews, Martin. Well, I hope we'll have some impact here. What about the issue of agency? Um, it comes up so often in our show. I had a young uh, teenage environmental activist a couple of years ago, Hannah Testa, who wrote a book on taking on the plastics crisis. She tells her story in terms of agency. How important should human agency be in literature for a changing planet? Is that the core of, uh, of, of our interest, uh, our habit of telling stories, to remind us that we control our own fate, even if we're writing about the gods? Yeah, it's it's become, towards the end of the book, that became for me sort of one of the central categories, agency. And so I started to look a lot at different forms of agency. You know, you have these epic stories, you have sort of this one Superman, uh, uh, to go back to an earlier point you made, sort of the one hero uh, who will save us. Clearly, that's not going to happen. So I started to think about collective forms 
of agency. Um, and I feel like that's that's what we need. And this is what some of these young activists are so good at uh, exercising and showing us how, how to do. So this, again, this means that I think we need to tell stories of collective agency, not stories where one Superman uh, saves us. Martin, what about politics? I mean, politics is also about telling stories. It doesn't seem as if many of our politicians, from Biden to Trump, tell very compelling stories anymore. Sometimes they're muddled. Sometimes they're simply hateful. We had a, a show last year with Chris Goodall, who's the author of What We Need to Do Now in Terms of a Zero Carbon Future. And he talks about presenting the carbon future, for example, or our carbon future as a centrist issue. So not to get locked into, say, the Bernie Sanders camp. What is your book and what do you think about the telling of stories for political purposes, sometimes to convince people who you don't even necessarily agree with or admire? I think it's very important. And one of the things, you know, it's important for the environmental movement not always to be preaching to the choir. This is why I like, uh, for example, authors like Neil Stevenson in his Termination Shock. He has a very yeah, different Yeah, Stevenson kind of... was actually on the show. Oh, great. Uh, I'll, I'll have to look for that. I had I missed that. So, you know, he comes from, has a very different readership, thinks about in very different ways. But in some sense, you know, you can read this novel as a critique or critical reflection on, on, on um, geoengineering, which I think crosses over into a lot of environmental thinking. And so that I think that's important. It's also why I think it's good. I have personal you know, my own personal feelings may be not relevant here, but someone like Elon Musk, who suddenly made it cool yeah. among, you know, certain uh, Republicans to drive electric cars. That wasn't the case. They're not going to drive a Prius. Um, yeah. And, and Musk is someone who turns a lot of people's stomachs, including mine. But as you say, I mean, he's certainly an important figure. He's probably accomplished much more for the environment than Bernie Sanders. Uh, so, Martin, finally, as I said, you, you have a really interesting new book out, Literature for a Changing Planet, telling stories to address, to confront our climate catastrophe. In addition to your new book, in, there are many books in your book. What else? You're a professor of literature at Harvard University. What else should people be reading? What texts would you, would you select for them on a reading list, a short reading list for our viewers, in addition to your new book? Well, as I said, the, the, this collection of folk tales from the Amazon. Yeah, really that's a good one. I'm, in fact, I'd like to get that person on the show. Yeah. Um, the, you know, I mentioned uh, Neil Stevenson. Okay, here's one, although it's sort of a mean recommendation because you can't read it. I don't know whether you know about this project Future Library by uh, Kate Patterson. No. It's, this, it's this project that started eight years ago where every year a writer is asked to write a story. That story gets handed over to uh, Kate Patterson in in the wood above Oslo, and it will be entrusted to Oslo University, and where it will be locked for a hundred years. In the meantime, a forest is growing up, uh, and in a hundred years, the paper made out of that forest will be used to print these texts. So it's sort of this long-term environmental uh, 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 frame. Though the writers 
who have been asked to contribute, starting with Margaret Atwood was the person, first person, are not necessarily or not only uh, uh, um, environmental writers. So the most recent one who just handed over her story was the Zimbabwean writer, Tsitsi Dangarembwa. And so I can't read these stories. No one living today will be able to read these stories. But what I would love to know is whether this sort of environmental, environmental framing of this storytelling for the future exercise influences these writers, leaves her, because you have to think about what the world will be like in 100 years. Uh, these will be your readers, uh, you know, and the book you they will be reading will be made out of these trees. So I love this project. And I guess I just want to do a plug for these this project, though it's more about it's an invitation, I suppose, to think about 100 years from now to think about storytelling for the future in this environmental frame, even though perhaps perversely, no one, including me, uh, can actually read these texts. 